I'm Jonathan Goldstein, and you're listening to Wiretap on CBC Radio 1 and Sirius Satellite Radio 159. Today's episode, Hell is Other People, in which Sheila Hetty champions hibernation, a solipsist suffers isolation, and Josh makes the best of eternal damnation. The story begins in the afterlife, where three strangers, a man and two women, are being shown to their room in a hotel. The room has a couch and chairs. It all seems pretty civilized. As the three begin talking, getting to know each other, they very soon start grating on each other's nerves. The talking turns to arguing, and as they each zero in on each other's sore spots, it dawns on them that this is hell, and they've been placed where they are, together, in order to make each other miserable, for eternity. Nearing the end of the play, for this is a play, Jean-Paul Sartre's no exit, the man of the group, Garcin, says, So this is hell. I never have believed it. You remember all we were told about the torture chambers, the fire and brimstone? Old wives' tales. There's no need for red-hot pokers. Hell is other people. At a certain point earlier in the play, the door to the room is suddenly opened, and Garcin is given the chance to escape his tormentors and be free. But he does not leave. How absurd, one thinks, that he should choose to stay in hell with these people who are driving him mad. And yet, it's no more irrational than how we actually choose to spend our lives. When you think about it, we remain in terrible relationships, attend awful get-togethers, we keep friendships alive with people that make us feel small. And why? Why do we subject ourselves to it? Well, writer Sheila Hetty has decided to get to the bottom of it, to find out why indeed, once and for all. I wonder why I'm here at this bar, when I'd rather be at home. I wonder why all these people are here, when so many of them would also be happier at home. At home, you can wear your pajamas. No one is going to snub you or disappoint you. The scotch is cheaper there. And it's less depressing to think the same thoughts you thought yesterday than to have the same conversation you had last week. And few of us will get lucky. So why did we go out? For so many years, I have asked myself, Why do you spend time with other people? But I never really attempted to come up with an answer. I always believed I was asking myself a rhetorical question, but a question you ask yourself a thousand times eventually deserves to be answered. So I began to think that if I knew why I went out, I might feel less suspicious of myself for going out. I might criticize myself less. I might be able to look around without thinking, what a fool, why did you come? You should have stayed at home. I decided to write down a list of every single reason I could think of to go out. The list came to 12. But then I noticed, after staring at the paper for a while, that those smaller reasons could be organized into four major reasons for leaving the house. One, desire. For love, sex, companionship, whatever. Two, sociological curiosity or aesthetic appreciation. Three, to test ourselves. Four, 
because someone else wants to hang out. A couple of years ago, I quit smoking. And to help myself along, I read a book called Alan Carr's Easy Way to Quit Smoking. Now, Alan Carr's premise is twofold. First, you have to accept that smoking is not a habit. It's a drug addiction. And second, the only way to quit smoking is to never have a cigarette ever again. Well, I followed his advice and it worked. It can't be helped if Alan Carr is now coming to mind. You see, I'm wondering, what if I'm actually addicted to people? If so, maybe it's possible to quit them. See, the last time I ended a relationship, my body experienced the exact same sensations I had when I gave up cigarettes. There was a physical ache that came and went, a sort of gaping emptiness, a void that needed to be filled. The longing for a person is almost identical to the longing for a smoke. It's weird. So I wonder, is it possible to renounce people? To endure those weeks of physical withdrawal symptoms and thereafter attain the qualities that Alan Carr claims every non-smoker is in possession of? Health, energy, wealth, peace of mind, confidence, courage, self-respect, happiness, and freedom? If that's the truth, why go out? Alan Carr advises smokers who are considering quitting to put the following three questions to themselves. And I think it'll be useful to ponder them when we consider whether it's worthwhile to try and be cured of our addiction to other people. One, what is it doing for me? Two, do I actually enjoy it? Three, do I really need to go through life paying through the nose just to stick these things in my mouth and suffocate myself? So we ask of socializing. What is it doing for me? As I mentioned, we get together with other people to satisfy desires. The desire to love and be loved, the desire for sex, talk, companionship, all those things. But truly, who has ever been satisfied by people? No, other people don't satisfy us, but rather, like cigarettes, give us the temporary illusion of satisfaction while prolonging our dependence. Alan Carr's second question, do I actually enjoy it? Does anyone actually enjoy more than one party in seven? How often do you get trapped by a person who goes on and on and won't shut up? So let us for the moment renounce people, not in a doomed to failure way, forever plagued by doubts. How long will the craving last? Will I ever be happy again? Will I ever enjoy a meal again? How will I cope with stress in the future? Will I even want to get up in the morning? But rather, let us joyfully and willfully renounce other people and bring on self-confidence, courage, energy, peace of mind, and self-respect. Why go out? We should stay in. We could be like little Buddhas, meditating and watching TV. We can imagine ourselves to be brilliant, kind, good speakers, good listeners, truly loving. And there will be no way to prove it otherwise. A story. For the first six months of 2005, I lived alone in Montreal. I went there because I was overwhelmed with the drama in my life. And I picked Montreal because it was a place I had no friends. For the first few weeks, all I experienced were pangs of withdrawal for everyone I loved back home. And then it passed. 
and once it passed, I was in heaven. There I sat in my lovely cheap apartment, no distractions, surrounded by all my favorite books. The mountain was two blocks away and I could climb it whenever I wanted. Self-confidence, health, happiness, the equanimity of the non-smoker, all were mine. And then I destroyed it. I met one person and then another one, and before I knew it, all the chaos of life came rushing back, along with all my anxiety, self-doubt, and fear. But maybe that's what it's for, self-confidence and courage and energy and peace. Perhaps it's there to be used in the world. Perhaps there's only one thing to do with it, and that's spend it. I'm always really conscious of the fact that whenever I go out into the world, or whenever I get involved in a romantic relationship, my idea of who I am utterly collides with the reality of who I am. I always prove myself to be less generous, less charming and considerate, and not as bold or energetic or intelligent or courageous as I imagined in my solitude. And I'm always being insulted or snubbed or disappointed. And I'm never wearing my pajamas. Yet in some way, maybe this is better. Every one of us here could suffer the pangs of withdrawal and gain the serenity of the non-smoker. We could be like demigods in our little castles, all alone. But perhaps, at heart, none of us really wants that. Maybe the only cure for self-confidence is humility. Maybe we go out in order to fall short, because we want to learn how to be good at being people. And moreover, because we want to be people. And so, to return to Alan Carr's final question to the would-be quitter, do I really need to go through life paying through the nose just to stick these things in my mouth and suffocate myself? Yes, Mr. Carr. Yes. Sure, people can be hell, but they can also be our solace, where we invest our greatest hopes. Other people make us feel human. But what if we were to lose all the people in our lives? Everyone. The man who serves us our coffee in the morning. The doorman who tips his hat hello at night. Our family and friends. Such was the case for Michael Crawford. When Michael was a boy, he was fascinated by the world. He'd roam all over the hills surrounding his home, exploring, chasing lizards with his friends. Then one day, when he was about eight, he came across a science fiction book that threw the entire world around him into question. I, I had read about a, a philosophical idea called solipsism, which is the notion that you yourself are the only living being in the universe and that everybody around you, the world around you, every physical object is actually a product of your own imagination. And I, I found that really interesting, and uh, I somewhere came across a mention that this idea had been disproved somehow, but the book didn't give the proof. Solipsism. Michael was intrigued by the concept and didn't find it all that disturbing, at least not at first. He devoted himself to his studies. He loved science. But the idea of solipsism, 
that nothing outside his own mind could be proven to exist simmered somewhere within him before finally surfacing years later. I started to doubt my reality in a way that I was consciously aware of when I was 20 years old. And I started having the feeling that none of this was real. And I remember very distinctly understanding that what I was experiencing was the solipsism. It's a very lonely experience. Imagine how you would feel if all the friends you had weren't really your friends, but were just pretending to be your friends, but they were, say, paid actors, you'd realize you really don't have a friend in the world. My feeling was like that, but a million times worse, in which I knew that everybody around me, none of them were real, and they could all disappear in an instant. Eventually, Michael was diagnosed with schizoaffective disorder, a rare mental illness that's been described as a combination of schizophrenia and manic depression. His disconnect with reality became so severe that he was admitted to a psychiatric ward. When I was there in the hospital, I, I, I had a private therapy session with my psychologist one day, and I told him what this solipsism was, and I explained it and, and where I first learned of it. And I told him I was experiencing it and, and that it bothered me tremendously, that I was frightened to be so convinced that nothing was real. And I said, but I read once that it's been disproven. And I said, could you come up with the proof? Could, could you prove to me that any of you are real? But he just flatly said no. He wasn't even going to attempt to disprove it or, or even to try to reassure me. And I didn't know what I was going to do. I became very desperate to find a way to prove to myself that anything at all really existed. I, I would talk to the other patients, I would talk to the other staff, none of them could, could come up with anything to help me, but uh, when I asked somebody to prove they were real, what I would want them to do was to start with some kind of fundamental axiom and then to carry out a series of logical steps conclusion would be, why, well, yes, I'm real, and, and you're not just hallucinating. Well, well, nobody can do that. Nobody there in, in the unit had the kind of education to even know what I was talking about. And I never did find the proof that that book mentioned, but I did find a way out of my terrible prison, the prison of my mind. Here's a model that I, I've used to, to understand what it's like for, for many mentally ill people and definitely what it was like for me. Imagine you were walking across a public square and you could see other people walking, you know, in, in the downtown of a large city, dogs running back and forth, birds flying, and then all of a sudden you slam into a wall and you fall down. And, and you look up and there's nothing there. People are looking at you all concerned. They, they ask if you're all right, they help you up, and, and you get up and you walk again and again, you slam into a wall that you can't see, and you start to feel yourself, feel your way around, and you realize that you're trapped in some kind of glass maze, but the walls are only there for you and not for the other people, and your job as an insane person is to feel your way around until you get to know 
the layout of the maze well enough that you can find your way out. And, and eventually you can tell people that you're lost in a maze. They'd have a hard time accepting this at first, but, you know, they keep seeing your nose getting bloody and you falling down and, and they want to help, but they can't see what, what's affecting you. I was there in the war trying to find my way out of a maze that I couldn't see. I only knew of its existence and, and the way it would impede my progress and the way it, it hurt when I ran into it head on. But what I eventually found that I was confident in the reality of things that I could touch and feel with my own hands. Somewhere there in the ICU, I noticed that when I touched something, the, the reality of things would leap out at me. And, and, and when I began to be aware of that, and I, I suddenly realized that maybe this is my way out, I, I went all around touching and feeling everything in, in the entire world. And uh, it was as if I was rebuilding the universe by reaching out and touching a brick that was only of my imagination, but when I touched it, it would spring into actual existence. There was a woman in there, uh, a, a beautiful young Hispanic woman, and she took a liking to me. And uh, I mean, we were both mad as hatters there in the intensive care unit of, uh, of a psychiatric hospital. But we had a, a, a passionate romance right there under the eyes of the nurses. And being able to hold this woman's hand and, and to, to hug her and, and to kiss her, that, that helped me to uh, uh, reestablish my confidence in the existence of the rest of the human race. And for many years after I got out of the hospital, whenever I would walk down the street, as I was past uh, street signs or lampposts, I would just reach out and tap them with my hand. And uh, I'm a very affectionate man, not just with women that I love, but with my friends. And, and I very often hug them and, and, and hold hands and, and so on. And uh, there's a deep need to break that separation and, and to connect. Touch is very important to me. Whether you're trying to reassure yourself of the world's reality or simply looking for a little bonhomie, reaching out and touching your friends is always the right thing to do. And when it can't be done in person, there's always the phone. Hello. Yeah. What's it? Why, why the... I'm going to hell. I mean, I'm going to hell. Don't you think about that? Why, why the sudden concern about hell? so worried about suffering for the rest of eternity. Why does that concern you? But it's never concerned you before, is what I'm saying. Lately I've been listening to a lot of metal music. Why would you do that? I'm trying to get in touch with my younger me, you know, trying to relive my past glories. 
But even when you were a kid, you were like more into disco. This isn't burn, baby, burn. Disco inferno. This is a real inferno. And I'm going there forever. I've been listening to these. I mean, read this list. Goblins will be a goblin. Mm -hmm. Your blood will be boiling. Think about it now. And yourself, you'll be soiling. What song is that? That's You're Going to Hell by Satan's Minions. All right. Well, Josh, I mean, that's, you know, it's, it's kind of nightmarish, but I mean... I mean, they name-check me in the song. That is not true. Talk about Carpati, going to hell. You're stupid and you smell. I mean, it's my nephew's band, but it really made me think. Would you say I'm a good person? No, I wouldn't. Yeah. Well, that clears it up. I didn't know, though, that you were such a religious guy, so concerned about hellfire. I'm not. I'm fearful. Mm-hmm. It's about hedging your bets. Uh-huh. I mean, have you read Dante's Inferno? There's some gnarly stuff that goes on down there. It is really terrifying. And then this whole rapture thing. Right? I don't even know if they overlap or what, but I'm going to be left behind like an empty bag of Doritos at a picnic. You, now, you're, you're concerned about the rapture? Enough with the being left behind. I've gone through so much of that in my life. For baseball, soccer, for hockey. I was always picked last, Joan. Mm. Basically, I don't like pain. Right? I don't like suffering. Right? And when I say those things, obviously, I mean my pain and my suffering, because otherwise it's not really relevant to me. Mm -hmm. I don't think I've been on the righteous path. You haven't been on any path. Why do you say that? One needs to leave the house to be on a path. You know, that's kind of hurtful. Well you, you, well, you know, maybe it's time that you started doing volunteer work or something. I, I, please. What? Let's not get crazy. Why is that crazy? I mean, I, I do volunteer work. I, I try to help. Bra, please. Don't front. I've never understood the whole mentality that you could just fiddle-faddle around with the, with the goodness and then all of a sudden, fantastico. Well, look into your heart. I mean, I'm sure you could find some kind of... If I looked into my heart, all I would see are giant occlusions of fat and cholesterol. Right, you know what? So make your peace with going to hell. I, I want you to say that again really slowly. And just think about it. Mm -hmm. I don't like hell. I get very sweaty. The devil's going to be bossing me around, telling me, do this, do that, suffer this, suffer that. I have a problem with authority. You know, I, I, I won't be able to choose the music. It's very emasculating. I mean, do you think about these things? I don't, no. I don't, I don't think about it so much. So what's going to, I mean, you, you're an awful person, right? So what's, what? I mean, what's going to happen to you? What, 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 what kind of a thing is that to say? I'm just calling it like I see it. Clearly the hammer's going to come down at some point. Oh. You have virtually no redeeming qualities whatsoever. That's really very... You're basically staring right in the teeth of eternal damnation. I can't think of a single mitigating argument... That would allow you to escape hell for all eternity. Hey, I'm glad we're having this conversation because, because quite frankly, I think we're going to be bunkies. Well, what is that supposed to mean? I'm not going to be in hell alone. You're going to be there too. And 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 this this delights you somehow. This well, idea. It just means that I'm I'm you know, I'm not going to be left behind. You know what? If you take comfort in this idea of me being with you, great. Oh, and, and and not only that. I've seen the results of my electrocardiogram. I'm going to be dying first. And you know what that means? What does that mean? I'm going to have a whole network of friends by the time you get down there. Because you lead the life of an ascetic. You're probably going to linger on until you're like, what, 60, 65? I'm going in the next two years. I'm going to be down there networking. I'm going to have a chance to establish my brand. Literally. Sorry, you know, when you come down, mm -hmm. I'm not even going to acknowledge that I know you. Oh, really? That's right. I'm going to play it all Mean Girl style. I'm gonna be with all the popular demons. You're not. You're not gonna be able to have your bowl of lava at our table. Beat it, noob. I don't know you down here. You're dead to me. It's gonna be hell for you.
I say hell is a place of extreme bodily suffering. Your suffering will be so bad that it'll turn to weeping. And then the weeping shall turn to wailing. And then the wailing shall turn to gnashing of teeth. Just as sure as you're listening to me, just as sure as you're listening to an eight-year-old voice, it's just as sure that you're going to go to hell if you're not saved. Your mind lies in the devil's workshop. Evil doings your thrill. And trouble and mischief is all you live for. You know done well and that you go to hell. You go to hell. On Wiretap today, you heard Joshua Carpati and Michael Crawford, whose music and writing about mental illness can be found at geometricvisions.com. You also heard Why Go Out by Sheila Hetty, whose latest book is How Should a Person Be? You can find her online at sheilahetty.net. Wiretap is produced by Mira Bertwintonic, Crystal Duhame, and me, Jonathan Goldstein. Tune into Wiretap Saturdays at 3.30 and Thursday evenings at 11.30. You can also hear Wiretap across North America on Sirius Satellite Radio 159. Or subscribe to the podcast at cbc.ca slash wiretap, where you can also download the latest Wiretap ringtone. L'enfer, c'est les autres. Let everyone know you're a misanthrope and bilingual with every ring of your phone. Now Satan was an angel in heaven, but he stood up trouble and woe. So the Lord.